The film is also fabulously paced, nicely shot, and with snappy, illuminating contributions from Borg, McEnroe, and an unexpectedly wry Mats Vielander. That's from Kevin Marr of the Times UK. He's talking about Boom Boom, The World versus Boris Becker, a three and a half hour documentary on Apple Plus. Watched it, devoured it, loved it. Speaking of documentaries, I Am Richard, currently available now. I actually don't even know that's the title. It's about Little Richard, though, I can tell you that. It's coming out, uh, it's in select theaters right now and on some streaming platforms. We're reviewing that next week. But, big news is this. The month of all guests here on Cinephile, it continues. This week, two more heavy hitters. Giovanni Rabisi is going to join us. He's got stories from Waco, The Aftermath, working with Michael Shannon, working on The Offer, which is a show I really enjoyed talking with The Godfather, and... Shout out to Chris Cody, who reminded me he was in Saving Private Ryan. You sent me the scene. I asked for BC. He's got a tremendous story. You're going to want to hear him talk about Steven Spielberg. And he was also on Friends. Plus, George Tillman, my man, my guy, giving me my shot in the silver screen. This week, I'm making my debut in theaters. Big George Foreman, George Tillman Jr., the director who directed me and Robert Flores. We're going to have him on MLB Network this week as well, but here he's going to be on Cinephile. Chris, the good vibes just keep on going here on Cinephile. I mean, how, how was Ray week for you? How'd you had how a Ray Romano week go so, for you? Again, big props to you. You got us Ray Romano on That's the show. That's why I brought and, it up. I just wanted to get the praise. <laughs> you, you deserve all the praise. We had him on MLB Network, and he was tremendous. I said, hey, uh, it's Adnan. Uh, I recorded you last week, Chris, Christie's husband. He's like, yep. Like, I had to make sure I gave him the whole spiel. He's like, yep. And then I was like, he was also talking on Levitar. He's like, yep, yep, yep. And then I, I actually listened to your interview with Ray on Levitar, which was great. My favorite part was, again, he, you, you really know you're a part of the family because he's talking about, because of Dan, um, not incorrectly, but has made the assumption because he's from Queens. He's a Mets fan. He goes, well, no, actually, I grew up a Yankees fan. It's because of Chris's father-in-law. I'm like, nice. Shout out to the family. I'm like, glad that. And I, I'm with you. He, he had good stuff there talking about his anxiety when he was driving, seeing people that are turning green. That was, what was wild. That all about stuff? Legitimate yeah. green people he started seeing when he was first, like the first few days of directing. And then I love Dan, but typical Dan move, he then makes it bigger than it is. I like that Ray pushed back. He's like, you know, how do you deal with this crippling anxiety? And Ray's like, well, I went, yeah, he goes, I would say it's crippling. It's just once in a while I get a little bit anxious. You know what I mean? Like, that's it. Like, it's because like, I don't want to. I'm still mad. Yeah, 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 I don't want to over exaggerate things. He's like, I got a little chest pains. I went to the doctor. I was fine. Then I directed a movie. I'm not, I'm not my, like, you know, I'm like Howard Hughes. Here. I saw Did some green people. What do you want from me? That's it. <laughs> Yeah, the fact he could make a joke about it was pretty good. But I, I enjoyed it. He talked a little good jet stuff with you guys as well. He talked a little football. Him and Stu guys definitely bonding over that. So, anyways, Ray with us was awesome. I gave him that spiel, and I go, so give me the same answers you gave me because the interview's already posted. And he goes, wait, wait, what, what do you mean posted? I go, the interview you and I did, that's available now. I'm going to do this on MLB Network, so you're going to give me the same answers. I'm going to literally say, hey, tell me about the time that Scorsese cashed in vinyl. I didn't know who you were. And then you're going to give me that story. He's like, got it. <laughs> like a true actor, he took direction. So he was great. And in fact, then he gave me a bonus story because we didn't include the Marty story due to time. Um, but he did the De Niro story. Go, I said something about, you know, De Niro doesn't say much, you know, but he's a sweet guy. He goes, oh, I don't think, I don't think I told you the story. Now he may have told it on Mark Maron because Mark Simon texts me. He goes, he's got a good De Niro story on Mark Maron. But this one time, Ray, fresh material for you and me. He goes, after I did that scene with him, the Irishman, he goes, now I'm not a big, I need a pat on the back kind of guy, but I'm driving back and I was like, I could kind of use a pat on the back here. Like, you know, I just, I just worked with De Niro. Like, I don't know. And I call my wife. I go, I hope it was okay. And he goes, I go back to the hotel and I, and I feel a pat and it's De Niro. And he goes, hey, Ray. And he goes, he just kissed me on the cheek. And afterwards, I was like, he didn't say any words. So I was like, okay, I think that's good. Then I was like, wait, I'm making a mafia movie. He just gave me the kiss of the death. Like, I might get whacked tomorrow kind of thing. But he, but he goes, but he's a very sweet man. He goes, but he is a man of few words. He goes, he does not say much. That's just, that's just a But he's a very, very sweet guy. Yes. So good De Niro story there from Ray. Of course, Ray's a great guy. He's been everywhere. I didn't see him on Fallon. I recorded it the other day. I, I, as I mentioned, Mark mentioned he's on the uh, Mark Maron podcast. So I hope somewhere in Queens does great. I hope everyone goes and sees it. Again, he was very generous with me and Chris and very kind. And the baseball stuff, as you had told me, 
me. He grew up a Yankees fan. Now he says he cheers for both the Mets and the Yankees. He's playing because- both sides. <laughs> that's, that's very good, Sean Connery, and very accurate as to Ray Romano's baseball taste. But a lot of buzz is still coming back about Monica Bellucci. I mean, my dear friend Mark Calmanici, proud Italian Canadian, just turned forty. He was like, "Are you kidding?" Because that was unbelievable. He goes, "You were like the film is gorgeous, you're gorgeous." Like he's just just blatantly flirting with Monica Bellucci. It was unbelievable. And my friend Alpha's like, "How is there no video?" And I go, "Listen, this is not Chris's fault. I'll explain." They, we asked them, "Are you going to record?" They said, "We'll record and send it to you." Chris and I assume that means a video recording. Instead, they send only an audio record. So now, listen, moving forward, we will always have video recordings. We, we, we get Jessica Alba. I'm going to go. They're going to say, we're sitting at you. We well, you know what? Chris would still like to record it. We're going to send it for social purposes. We would like video. So no video exists of Monica Bellucci, except that is emblazoned in my brain. Like, I will always have the image of me saying to her, tu sei la plus bella ragazza del mondo. And her going, oh, thank you. I feel like I you have- saying that was more memorable for you than it was for her, though. <laughs> I'm going to be brutally honest with you, Adnan. But you don't think that she reacted well to that comment? I think if like, somebody said like, that exact thing to her right now, she would have forgotten that someone said it to her in an interview a few weeks ago. Like, it's not like she'd be like, ah, Adnan. Like, it's not like I feel like she'd be like, did I hear that recently? Nope. So uh, just as I said to Ray, hey, it's Adnan. Chris, Christie's husband, that jogged his memory. Whereas if I talked to Monica, right now, okay, Monica, I spoke to you last week. I spoke Italian to you. I said, and she'd be like, Mm. She have no idea. It's not the same hook as I'm, um, you know, Chris is related to you kind of in a weird way. <laughs> I think, well, again, you didn't see it. So her, it still set her heart aflutter. She was still flattered by the comment. You're right that, she, you're right that it was probably not memorable, but I, I'm telling you, in the moment, the fact that I said it, it got a reaction. Okay. Well, luckily, <laughs> I mean, that stinks because, like, it's only you're, you're the only person that will ever know that. Like, no one sees it. <laughs> And the best part is like every year the story will become more exaggerated. Like right now, the truth is she kind of smiling, give a slight blush, like, oh, thank you. And then over time, it's going to be like she almost fainted. And then and that's going to be like, dude, five years ago, like, she actually said, you're not so bad yourself. I'm like, what? Monica Bellucci said that to you. I'm like, she said, she said, she said, she said, you know, I'm currently dating Tim Burton, but I'd be, I'm willing to, you know, if you're, ever in, if you're ever in Jersey, let me know. That's what we need. I feel like you got a shot. If Tim Burton, I mean, come on. Well, that, but that's the best part. So I'm telling Chris, like, oh, Monica Bellucci, and he didn't know. Yeah, at first he thought it was Jim Belushi's sister. I go, no, no, it's Monica Bellucci. Look her up. Italian bombshell. He sees it. goes, whoa. And then he goes, I go, currently she's dating Tim Burton. And the picture you called, somebody Googles right now, just look up the picture. It's like, I mean, if I, can, if I may say, Beauty and the Beast. It's like an unbelievable picture if you look it up. And I love Tim Burton. He's a hell of a director, man. Listen, Beetlejuice all day. Batman, the first two, you know I love those. But like that is... I don't think if he hears this, he's going to think like you praising his movies is going to make up for what we just did. Like, I, don't, we've lost it. We're never getting but Tim I th- Burton. I thought you were going to say, I think he's self-aware. I think he knows. He's walking in the street like, are you kidding? You're with Monica Bellucci? Like, jeez, man. What are you doing? How much money do you have? Like, Tim is, Tim is doing well for himself. Um, yeah. <laughs> Chris just did an impressive job on the fly, a screen share. So go to the independent. If you Google Monica Bellucci, Tim Burton dating, you will see an incredible side-by-side that just, just defies description. And again, I know why Chris is sensitive to this. Because again, when people see him in Christie, they're always like, wow, that's your husband? So you're always like, hey, dude, like it's not. Because you mentioned this. And then relax. They don't always do that. <laughs> a couple times people have said, your wife is really pretty. Like, you know, let's just see it. But, like, but yes, people do it all the time. All time. <laughs> Pete Davidson as well. Pete Davidson. That, that's why I told you I don't like Pete Davidson. Because I'm like, how the hell do you get Kardashian? That's why. That's how I remember this I don't think Pete Davidson's that bad looking. Like he's, hey. not like, he's not Brad Pitt, but he's a fine looking person. I don't understand this bad rap Pete Davidson gets. No, but Kardashian's unbelievable. And, and you're like, Pete Davidson? Like, that's... It's clearly not a fair fight. It's the BDE. <laughs> 
He's got a new show, by the way. I think it's called Bupkis or something that's streaming. We're going to try to get Brad Garrett. We've reached out to the people. We're like, incredible cast. Edie Falco? No. Joe Pesci? No. Davidson? No. We might be able to get Brad Garrett. That would continue the Everybody Loves Raymond theme. Yeah. Exactly. That, that will continue the Ray theme here. I, I, again, if you look at these guest lists, you got us Ray, I got us Michael Shannon, and today's guest Giovanni Ribisi. But Laura Brandt, she got me Bellucci, so that's, that's always the queen. All right. Let's talk a little movie, shall you? A quick thought, by the way. Chris was on vacation last week. The only reason I mentioned it is I was worried if something major happened in entertainment, people would think, why didn't you guys talk about it? But Chris was away. I hope you had a great little time with the family. Local vacations, right? You guys just kind of did... Uh... The, the Disney stuff, man. And uh, the, the fast pass, not to get bogged down, is a game changer. Like I, I, like, I went a couple years ago with my parents. Every ride was like 45 minutes an hour. Didn't wait more than 15 minutes all week. Dude, that's... Okay, now, how expensive? You don't mind my asking. It's an extra 20 bucks a person... For that, but if you're spending hundreds of dollars to get in the park, yes, I'm going to spend an extra sixty to not wait in any lines. The amount of people that don't do it is mm. mind-boggling. It's like, I get it, sixty bucks is not a small amount of money, but if you're already spending for three people to be in the park, four hundred dollars. It's like you yeah. don't want to spend four sixty for a much better time. It's just the the, the upcharge is so small compared to what you're already paying. I don't understand. I'm glad not everybody does it because if everyone did it, the lines wouldn't be fat. Like it's, but it's mind-boggling to me that they don't do it. I'm with you on that. If you're already if you're already locked in, if you'd said to me hundred dollars per person, I'd go. Mm, that seems like a lot. I don't know. I'm in three hundred bucks. But like you said, if you're paying four hundred, four sixty, and if bro, it's hundred and thirty bucks per ticket to get into the park, so correct, it's like correct. I'm gonna pay one fifty to not wait in any lines. Like I'm already spending yeah. one thirty. It's just. Is it called a? It's a fast pass. I was gonna say hopper pass. No, they call different. it Genie Plus. Because of like, Genie you know, Plus. Disney, the genie, like they just get, it's fast pass. Yeah. It's just a separate line. My okay. daughter has no good clue how good she has it. I, as we're walking through this fast pass, I'm trying to teach my five-year-old, like see all these other people waiting in line. We're not because of money. We spent money yeah. on this. Like this yes. isn't just how life works. I'm trying to like teach her like things value. It's like, it's hard with five-year-olds, man. They just think like, oh, this is fun, life. Yeah. This is my life. I just can eat whenever I want. I go to theme parks. I don't wait in lines. It's just right. this is my life. It's like I'm trying to teach her, like, you have a good kid. I think it will help, again, not to get into your business, but if you indeed have a second child, because then she'll realize it's not just about her. Right now, the world is revolving around her. And that might not be happening, Adnan, so i got to figure this out with one. All right? <laughs> okay. Well, I don't think she's spoiled. I think she's five. She's enjoying life, and I'm glad you guys had a good, good little break there. Anyways, Chris is back, so I'm glad he had a good time. But that's why, in case anything major happened in the world of entertainment, the major thing that has happened is a few weeks ago in succession, but I still don't want to ruin it for people. I feel like somebody still may not be aware of just how momentous episode three was of succession. If I'm not mistaken, Cody used to watch it, but then didn't watch it anymore. So I still don't even want to spoil it for you. So I'm going to do a formal succession review. I'm going to do it next week. That's a full month since, again, a momentous episode happened on season three. The show's been unbelievable. Also, I'm locked into Barry, three episodes in. Bill Hader doing a remarkable job starring and directing. Again, we'll do a formal review of those shows later on here on Cinephile. What I wanted to talk about before we got to Giovanni Ribisi, though, is as Chris knows, I'm a huge tennis guy. Now, everyone knows how much I love Federer, but my guy prior to Federer was Boris Becker. Growing up, he's the one that I fell in love with as a tennis fan. My mom grew up in England, so naturally she loves Wimbledon, and you think of the, the king of Wimbledon, it's Becker. Three-time champion, but a seven-time finalist. Like, he's always known for being the guy, age 17, incredible career, he was the first German to win, the first unseated player to win, flying all over the place. Won three times, but lost four times. Still, seven Wimbledon finals. The guy's a remarkable player, and 
That's why the documentary is called Boom Boom. It was his serve, right? Boom Boom. He was always aggressive, always fearless, diving all over the place. Like his, his serve and volley game, you don't see in tennis anymore now. Nobody serves in volleys. Becker really was the epitome of that. So I loved him as a player. And just an example of how things kind of come out of nowhere in this world of streaming, you go, I didn't know about that. This documentary came out a couple weeks ago, and I found out about like maybe a day after it happened, which you say to yourself, that's not a big deal. But nobody, I know about these things months in advance, weeks in advance. I go, what? There's a documentary about Boris Becker? I'm like, yeah, they got him to sit down, and away we go. And it's done by Alex Gibney, who is a huge name. Why? He did the documentary on Scientology, going clear of the case against Scientology on HBO, and also I love Sinatra. He had a great documentary on Sinatra as well, two parts. So Gibney's a heavy hitter, and the documentary is nothing short of fascinating. Now, I gave the preamble that I'm a huge Becker fan, because perhaps you're listening, you're not a big tennis fan, you don't care about Boris Becker. I'm clearly very invested. But the life of Boris Becker, a guy who was a teenage sensation, uh, won the first of his six majors at the age of 17, 49 career major titles, and an Olympic gold, and yet just got out of prison. The guy just served eight months in prison after being prison for two and a half years, got out for good behavior. I mean, this is the stuff of rich, fertile material. And what I loved about it, there's a lot of things I loved about it. I just watched again the first 15 minutes. It's two parts, three and a half hours. But the first 15 minutes, you know, with great documentaries, here's how you do it. You have to start present day. Whatever story you're telling, you got to start present day. So the first shots are cameras, Legal proceedings, Borns Becker going to prison, like, oh my God. And Every doctor, same formula. Every doctor. Formula. You always start current. You're mocking me, but I'm right. You start out current, then you go back. If you're doing a documentary about 1936 games, you start today. You go, here's Jesse Owens, here's blah, blah, blah. This is where his tombstone is. Then the documentary goes back. You get the newsreel footage, et cetera. It just seems like it might get a little repetitive. But this is the way docs do it. Okay. Boris Becker is a fascinating human being. As John McEnroe says, he goes, you don't understand how big Boris was. He goes, in Germany, he was like Elvis. Like, it was massive when he won. He goes, good-looking guy, athlete, rich, charismatic, like bananas. And some of the best stories are about the players he's playing. So as a kid, you know, he's fresh, he's young, he's this upstart. Borg was his favorite. Of course, Borg famously retired at a young age as well. And Becker at one point talks about Borg's influence, saying, you know what? I just wanted to get out while I could. Didn't want to play forever. Started not like tennis. The, but McEnroe, as always, is hilarious. He's talking about playing Becker and just how frustrating it was because he's like, normally these guys are wilt a little bit, but Becker just kind of coming at you, coming at you. That serve was so strong. And McEnroe goes, listen, I'm not saying he was a lot better than me. He beat me, but maybe if we were at the same age, it would be more interesting. McEnroe says, I was older in my career. Becker was still coming up. Um, he tells a great story later on, though. He goes, like, the thing about Boris is he was very unreliable. And he said at one point, you know, he was looking for help. Becker needed a coach. So he goes, one of his guys called John. He goes, hey, you want to be my coach? He's like, sure. And he's like, well, I'm in the Hamptons. I'm, Macro goes, I'm going through a terrible divorce at the time. I'm with my kids. And I go, if Boris wants to talk, he can come see me. Um, we set up a plan that day. And he goes, then like, I waited two hours. And he just called, like, yeah, I can't make it. I'm like, okay. And then there was another tournament in Indianapolis. And his wife, Barbara, called. because listen, Boris really wants your help. And Macro said, hey, Barbara, if Boris really wants my help, He'll call me. All right? He goes, and he didn't call me. So he's like, dude, I, like, settle out your problems here. Like, you have to be reliable. Like, if you, if you don't want to get stuff done, that's fine. Like, Becker was just a guy who was unreliable. He just had stuff going on and just wasn't all the way there. But as a player on the court, he was formidable. Macker also gives really good insight as to when Becker was coaching Djokovic. Again, as everyone knows me for half a minute, knows what a, what a Federer fan I am. The only, I remember tweeting this, when Djokovic won Wimbledon, I go, the only redeemable aspect of this is Boris Becker as a champion again. Boris Becker became Djokovic's coach. Novak met him and said, I want you to coach me. And Becker said to him, you're not tough. Like, you're weak. He's like, Federer, people love. Nadal, they love. They don't love you. And he's like, and you go out there and you see the crowds and they're loving Roger, they love Rafa, and you wilt. 
So if you want to go with me, you're going to toughen up. And Djokovic was like, all right, I think this is the guy for me. And Macro makes a joke. He goes, at one point, like, you know, how hard is it to coach Novak Djokovic? Like, oh, here's the ball. Here's the racket. Have fun. He goes, but, but Boris knows the game. I'm sure he taught him some tactics. But more than anything, it was mental toughness. He goes, Becker was one tough SOB. He was one tough hombre. And I think he got to Djokovic to be like, bro, you need to be tougher than Roger and Rafa because those guys will beat you on a mental level. And so it was really kind of cool to relive his job as a coach when Djokovic won, seeing Djokovic winning, and seeing Boris Becker, a champion again at Wimbledon. But of course, that's not the stuff that's going to sell. The reason why it's two parts is the first part is the glory of Becker. Winning Wimbledon, rich, famous, very attractive black wife, Barbara Becker. And at that time, it was a big deal. Like interracial marriage in the 80s and 90s, like, huh? And he's German. Like Becker's like, yeah, he goes, I never saw a race. Generally dated black women. Barbara was gorgeous. He goes, and she tells a story. She goes, he met me at a party. And with the second or third sentence out of his mouth was, whose place are we going to, mine or yours? And she goes, he wasn't like just hitting me on. He was kind of like, I'm so famous. Wherever I go, people are watching me. So where do you want to go to have a proper conversation? Your place or mine? Because we can't do it. Or wherever I go, I'm Boris Becker. It's, it's, it's madness. But he also told her that night, I'm going to marry you one day. Anyways, they have a couple kids, things go well. Then we get to what everyone knows about Boris Becker, especially if you like the headlines, the broom closet. So here's what happened. He's finishing up his career. Him and Barbara got a couple kids. He says to her that night, I'm going to go out tonight and uh, I'm going to get after it. And she's like, listen, you've retired now. Like You've had a great career. Come home to me and your kids. And he's like, I will, but I want to have one more night with the boys. And his mom says to him, Boris, don't do anything stupid. He says, all right, mom, no problem. Goes out with his buddies. They get blasted. Meets a girl. He has sex with her, allegedly in the broom closet. You see the German tabloids, five seconds of fun, cost Becker a fortune, Becker's love child, blah, blah, blah. Now, Becker's in his own words, to make this clear. He's talking to the camera. He says, you know, it's my fault. It's my mistake. He goes, things happen. He goes, by the way, I did not have sex in a broom closet. We did have sex there. But if everyone has been to Nobu, you can't have sex in a broom closet, whatever it is. He's like, but yes, I had sex with her. He goes like, <laughs> seven or eight months later, she gets a phone call. I need to speak to you. He sees this woman come in pregnant, and she's like, I'm pregnant with your child. He's like, oh, God. He doesn't say that in the doc, but I'm saying it. I'm like, I couldn't even imagine what his emotions are. He's like, okay. He goes and tells Barbara, hey, that night I retired. I slept with this woman. She's carrying my child. She doesn't, she doesn't leave him on the spot, remarkably. He goes, I love you. I'm sorry. It's my fault. I effed up. Like, we'll try to work through this. And he's like, and then I, I promised Emily went from there. Now, Gibney's really smart, the documentarian. He goes, the way that Boris tells me that story sounds legitimate. It's his voiceover. He said, but then I asked some other people what happened. And like, she was like, no, no, what happened is I told him it's his kid. He's like, it's not my kid. I mean, whatever happened, happened. And then she was like, well, we got to take a paternity test. Like, oh. And then the mother is talking, saying, hey, if you had just told me I'll take the paternity test, and if it's my kid, I'll, I'll support him, fine. But you kind of were like a bit of a jerk about it. That's why the tabloids got the story, which made me realize how many stories in life you and I don't know involving rich, famous people that go away just because of money. Like someone comes, like, here's a hush payment. What's it going to take for this to go our story to go away? $50,000. Okay. A million bucks and no one's ever going to hear a word. Yeah. But Boris didn't handle it well. He, he kind of was just like, yeah, whatever's not my kid. Like, yeah, you want to challenge me? He's like, okay, well, here we go. And then the story got a hold of it, et cetera. As far as him and his wife, he said, we kind of, this was an interesting way he put it. He goes, you know, when something like that happens, and again, it's my fault, he goes, it kind of always stays. He goes, like, we would be okay for a while, but then she'd bring it up again. There'd be some fight. And I said, Barbara, let's just split this up. He said, but I'm a generous guy. So I was like, all right, you're going to get a ton of money, alimony for the kids, et cetera. He starts dating a second girl. Again, very attractive black woman. They have a kid. You feel like it's a second act. But then the financial issues come. And at the, one of the parts, Gibney said, he goes, you have a son. What advice would you give him? This is two days before he goes to prison. He goes, what advice would you give your son? And Becker's like emotional. Like he's teary-eyed. He's just like, 
I said, son, take care of your own shit. Like, that's it. That's the thing in life. He goes, rich athletes, he goes, we're accustomed to a certain lifestyle, a certain way of living. And we don't realize when you stop playing, the money stops. You got to live differently or you got to make money differently. I did some broadcasting for BBC Wimbledon. I did some endorsements, but the money is not the same. And then you trust the wrong people. And this financial advisor says, put your money in this stock. I got this equity. And then the thing goes belly up. Now you got no money. You're still living a certain way. Now you can't pay your money on creditors. Now you got tax evasion. Now it's, he goes, it's just one after another. And I'm like, as he's talking, I swear, I felt like I, I'm glad I'm not rich. I swear. The way he was talking, I'm like, this sounds like such a headache. He's like, I got to pay alimony. I got to get this kid. This guy wants this much money. I'm like, oh my God. And so originally the, the, the law was going to put him in prison. The guy, I think he got a suspended sentence. This was like five, six years ago. So he, I remember before hearing Boris Becker financial problems. But then this last and the judge was like, you haven't learned your lesson. This is the second of it issues, income tax issues, you're, you're falsifying documents, whatever the hell it was. So Boris Becker served prison. I've seen stories, again, the doc goes right up until two days before his sentencing. He heard Gibney say, listen, you know, because he goes, what do you think is going to happen in two days? He goes, I'm hoping for a suspended sentence. I'm going to find out the rest of my life, but, but we'll see. And he was like, well, it was a pleasure talking to you. He's like, yep, good luck Oof. to you. So I, I, I really hope he got paid for this documentary because after that, he went eight months of prison. But Beck, a remarkable story. And it's a good reminder, Cody. We love to bring him up. We love to tear him down. Yeah, we do. It's a great moment. It's a great moment in air where they talk about Jordan and Damon saying, you're going to be Michael Jordan. You're going to change the world. They're going to love you, but they're going to love to tear you down. People love seeing the fall. And you've seen it with Tiger Woods. You've seen it with Boris Becker. You've seen it with many others. So it's a, it's a remarkable documentary. I can obviously talk Boris Becker a long time. It's for me, police. I loved it. Some reviews here. Uh, Dan Feinberg, a Hollywood reporter. While there's much to enjoy here, the formal uncertainty nags. I don't really know what Dan's talking about. Peter Bradshaw of Guardian. A frustrating and disappointing experience because of the baffling way it is structured. Both unrevealing and anticlimactic. What do you mean it's anticlimactic? I went to prison. What more do you need to know? He's Boris Becker. He's a legend. <laughs> At least for me. Um, that is that documentary again available on Apple Plus. Now it's time for our first of two very special guests. A pleasure to talk to Giovanni Rabisi right now. Waco, The Aftermath is available on Showtime. Giovanni, I recently spoke to Michael Shannon, who's obviously a tremendous actor, which you know, and you guys had that great scene together late in the series. I don't want to give it away, but I asked Michael about it, and he said, it was so much fun to do it with Giovanni, man. He goes, he's intense. He really gets into the character. What was your reaction like with that really great scene you had with him? Yeah, the same thing. I, I think he's just one of the one one of the great actors out there, and he, you see him uh, working. He's so diverse, um, but yet it's kind of really just for me, just so iconic. Uh, and and he was really a, a, a big draw for me to be involved in the in the in the whole thing. And the story still has such resonance, right? Everywhere you look, you see Waco is still such an impactful moment, and that's why. The series alone wasn't enough. That's why the aftermath, I think, in some ways, is just as important as the original miniseries you guys did. Yeah. So when my agent told me about the project, I, I said, "Well, I'm sorry, you must be mistaken. How could there be a, a sequel to Waco? I mean, it's kind of like a sequel to the Titanic. It's, it, it was pretty definitive." <laughs> and um, and then they said, "No, you you should read you should read it." So I, I did, uh, and uh, got through the 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 first episode and it was very you know it was a from from my involvement it was a, a a courtroom drama which was another sort of daunting thing so there there were all these different factors uh that that were i guess my headspace at the time were just sort of like warning signs and 
I, I picked up the phone to to call my agent to tell them that I, I probably maybe am t- too scared to do it or whatever. And, and I, you know, I, I found myself sort of like in the, in the middle of the conversation, but no, I, I have to do this. This is just something that, um, uh, is just amazing. I mean, the writing, everything down the line, uh, is just, uh, just as, as good as it gets. So, yeah, and it's really the courtroom drama aspect of it too. I remember Billy Bob Thornton one time said in Goliath, he goes like, all actors are great at playing lawyers because it's all about showmanship and grandstanding. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and he's like, are you kidding? Like actors and lawyers, like no problem. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, yeah, lawyers and, are. And you've got, and there's such a great aspect to your character specifically. Like, like I don't want to spoil it, but like he's on the side of what is right and what is just. Mm-hmm. And when he sees something that is happening that is not, he's just so enraged. Right. And it's like, it doesn't matter. The judge is threatening contempt of court. You're going to jail. Like, no, like this is like, who got to you? Who got to you? Like, it's, it's yeah. <laughs> a great, great scene. Tell me about that scene specifically and where that kind of righteous indignation stemmed from. Well, I mean, it, it came from because there there was in reality a, a, a sort of a surreal moment in the whole proceedings where they were acquitted and then uh, they the the court reversed their decision and it was this big mystery, this sort of big black hole, as, the, as far as like what the logic was and why they did that. Um, and and it just seemed like it was uh, there was something else going on. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it, w- w- another thing about it was p- playing the real life Dan Cogdell, um, who was just uh, such a fascinating individual. I, I, I would call him a, a friend. Um, he's just an, an, a really inspiring and, and, and someone who is, is truly the, the, uh, a criminal, a criminologist, a, 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 a philosopher, you know, when it comes to this, because he's in the trenches, uh, uh, dealing with this, taking, uh, you know, uh, unpacking, uh, you know, why something happens and what the proceedings of that are and, and, uh, how society reacts to that. Wake of the aftermath. Everyone's got to see it. Limited series currently right now on Showtime. You've had a good run, man. My wife and I love the offer and it was so great to oh, see you again. And I said, man, I go, I go, I haven't seen this guy in a while, but that must be for the role. He's put on some weight here, looks a little yeah. older, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, different yeah. voice. Uh, I'm happy to report it was definitely for the role, but but tell me about the offer, because that's, God, what a great story. And you and Miles Teller together, and you, you get to play the mobster who's, you know, put a lot of pressure here on Puzo and Coppola and company. Tell me about that role. Yeah, th- that was another thing. I mean, the, 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 where there was such a pedigree there, uh, um, this surreal sort of uh experience and and the, the hardest thing was was putting on the weight and um i was i had a steady diet of just a, a full jar of peanut butter every day on top of you know everything else um and then coming back from that and, and i i think that uh yeah waco was sort of in the middle of that trajectory on the other side uh still still losing the weight but yeah <laughs> this the stories are so funny behind the scenes and uh god it was just uh, <laughs> I mean, it's almost like you know, truth is stranger than fiction, right? Like, you, you can't possibly have a mafia movie with a mobster involved. Like, where does the story begin? Where does the fable end? But Al Ruddy's like, this is what happened, man. You got to believe it. Yeah. And uh, aside from that and all of the other aspects of what they did and how hard they worked to get a, a, a masterpiece made um, to, to, to fulfill a vision, uh, it's just inspiring, you know. I think that there was—it's just a different era. It's a different Hollywood that that um, that 
you know, I, I guess I was sort of perhaps maybe a little bit on exposed to when I was younger and on the tail end of that, where, um, you know, there's just a, 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 there's a, a different psychology behind making movies nowadays, which I think affects the films. I thought of Matthew Good as Robert Evans. I thought he was mesmerizing. I couldn't oh, yeah. stop laughing. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Great performance. Yeah. Um, my producer, Chris, texted me. And I told him I was talking to you today. He goes, hey, can you please mention Saving Private Ryan? And I hadn't seen oh, it in sure. a while. So I watched the scene again. I go, dude, that is an unbelievable scene. I mean, that is just, I, 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 what remembrances do you have? I can't imagine. It felt like you're in warfare, working with Spielberg and Hanks and all those guys. Yeah, it's funny. People ask me about that sometimes. And, and uh I just remember uh, lying there with all this, the, the, with the oh. fake blood that they had um, was glucose based. And so there were and there were a lot of bees circling. And so I just remember sort of being very conscious of that. And uh, I remember uh, it was sort of done in one long take where uh, Stephen was um, sort of talking me through it. And so I, you know, would die and I'd hear through a bullhorn you know, I'd say, I'd say mama and then die. And then he'd say, <laughs> say it again. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, and so those are my remembrances, but it sort of speaks to, uh, his genius and his, his, his creativity of, of what he did with that, you know? Um, so yeah. Die again. Can you die one more time for me? Sure. I'll say, it <laughs> say it again and then die. <laughs> um, speaking of directors, James Cameron, Avatar. I mean, as yeah. big as it gets, what I must, must be crazy for you. What, a, what, a, what an experience for you. Yeah. He's just another uh, uh, filmmaker that I just have so much respect for. And uh, it's just a, a privilege to, um, you know, to even have a conversation with him and, and to uh, learn about, uh, thing it's you know his experiences and his take on filmmaking really um and how it's uh it's just so much bigger than that um and the stories that he wants to tell I, I, those movies uh, really elevate or just have shine a different kind of light on the on the on on the 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 uh movie experience for an audience i think you know um so yeah it's just a privilege uh to to be involved in that stuff and in 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 those movies and and um and there's a lot more there's a lot more ahead so yeah that's the best part he's like well if this makes a billion dollars it'll be an avatar three if this makes a billion avatar <laughs> I know, he's just so honest about it yeah i mean it's <laughs> like it, it's just true it's just basic yeah uh last one for you i gotta ask you about friends i mean iconic role your oh, baby's yeah. brother i mean to this day you must walk down the streets of new york city and somebody's yelling at you about friends yeah, it depends on what uh, what country you're in, really, or what state you're in. Uh, um, New York is really boiler room. Like, you know, I get I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, like I used to do that and I find it, you know, that. Uh, but uh, uh, friends, um, it's interesting. Yeah, I don't even remember doing the show. Honestly, it's, it's funny because usually I would be working on something else and they'd call up and I'd come in because the producers were friends and uh, friends of mine. Um, and, uh, and so oftentimes I wouldn't even be able to rehearse throughout the week. I'd sort of get handed a script and walk on and say the dialogue. And then, and then, you know, two decades later, people are still, 
still quoting, like running up to you and saying, and you're like, what? I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. If only I had a dollar for every time somebody mentioned the fact yeah, right. that I was a friend, yeah. I'd be a rich man. Uh, Giovanni Urbisi has had an incredible career. I want everyone to check out Waco, The Aftermath. It is a terrific six-part limited series, and he is fantastic as a lawyer. Hopefully, Emmy nomination is coming for you and Michael Shannon and the entire crew. Giovanni, this was a lot of fun, man. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you so much. All right. It was good talking to you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Again, thanks to Chris. Saving Private. How great was that story? Spielberg yelling, all right, do it again. I mean, Steven Spielberg, it's amazing. It's what I think of. This Rabisi guy, it's one of those things, if, if you haven't, I assume if you've listened to the whole interview, you looked it up, if you don't know him by name, you know this guy. It's one of those character actors that you've seen in a bunch of things. I, don't, I didn't even know him by name before this, but when I looked it up, and that's the first, I think of Saving Private Ryan with that guy, but that's just me. I love it. It's an iconic film and definitely one that's memorable, and his story was great involving about it. At long last, I'm getting to make my appearance on the silver screen. You will hear my voice in Big George Foreman in theaters this Friday. Here is the director that made it happen. Well, I'm thrilled. I mean, it was only a matter of time until I was going to make my debut on the silver screen with a podcast like Cinephile, and the great George Tillman has given me that honor. His film is called Big George Foreman. It's in theaters April 28th, as I've told you about it. Me and Robert Flores, my friend and colleague, got to be the announcers in the Rumble in the Jungle. George, it's great to see you. Uh, I, I imagine, you know, because there's so much work when you're editing a project like this, especially putting it in post. We did this, I feel like late January, I recorded. Did you feel like it was just an embarrassment of riches? Like once you saw how good me and Robert were, you're like, oh my God, I, I must make this 12 minutes, right? Oh man, that was great, man. It was a great process because the whole thing is you want guys who know what they're doing. You know what I mean? And I feel like once you're messing around with George Foreman, the real George Foreman, this is not a fictional story. This is all true, all nonfiction. So you want the real guys involved. We have. So it was great. It was a great time, man. I was sitting back just listening to you guys, you know. <laughs> you were so great. As I told Chris, I was like, you know, it was literally couplets. We would do it. And you'd be like, all right, great. Do it again. I'm like, great. Do it again. And unless you gave direction, I would just do it the same. You'd be like, all right, be a little bit more shocked. Like, Ali's still on the ropes. I'm like, all right, I'll follow the direction. <laughs> but the funniest part was after we did it and you go, all right, you guys are actual announcers. You, you were sportscasters. You've called fights. I'm like, yeah, now just call the fight as you would. That was the most fun. And, and because I could see you on the Zoom, you're like pumping your fist laughing. <laughs> but that, that I think was fun. As a director, you directed us where need be. It was great. Oh, man, that was amazing because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I try as a director, it's always important to stay out of the way. I always say that. Stay out of the way. And the great thing about it is that fight 
the Ali Foreman fight. Foreman Ali fight. Always put Foreman first because he was the champion. And um, it was it's such a, a iconic fight. And you guys knew it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, being announcers, that's something that I felt like, hey, here's what I had in mind. But what you guys brought to the table was just a little bit more authentic. And I think Mr. Foreman would appreciate that a little more. So that was awesome. I always learned, stay out of the way. <laughs> All right, now, now, now it's just me and you, George, for a second. Let's pretend Adnan's not here. Tell me, tell me about the diva side of Adnan. Come on, was he hard? To, a little? Did he have like requests? A lot of requests, day of shooting. Give me the good stuff. No, here. man. You know what it is. I find out in in your life and career as directors is always the veterans, the people that know what they do. Is some of yeah. the nicest, coolest people to work with. And there's always the new people that's got one movie out. It's the <laughs> <laughs> So so these guys were great, you know? You don't have to have it. You can if you want to. Obviously, you don't have to name names. What is an example of something like an actor like that, a young actor, has done where you're like rolling your eyes at Yeah, it's just one of the things that I always have a problem with is being ready, not being late. You know what I mean? Right. It's just something about the younger situation, man. I did Minivana years ago with Robert De Niro. And man, this guy already had like 30, 20, 30 years before I worked with him. He's on time. He's early. We sitting in his trailer talking about what we need to do for the day. And then he talks at the end of the night. OK, how can we get better? So those are the kind of things when you hear stories like sports athletes like Kobe and Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, these guys put in time and work and they care about their craft. So this is something at the end of the day. I respect that. It makes the job much more better and stronger. And you're so collaborative. The best part was in the script. You say, hey, listen, there's this one line we hate. Foreman's legs are rubbery and Ali's are looking strong. And you say, how would you guys say that? And we go, ah, Foreman looks gassed and Ali ready to go. And you go, see, that's why you guys are professionals. That's that what works, man. You know, that's the thing about when you in Hollywood and you're working in this, on a screenplay and we're writers and yourself – you think you know what the best analogy is, and it's just we struggled with that line, man, for like three, four months, and then you guys did it in a few seconds. <laughs> uh, you're being humble, but it was great. Uh, it's so good to actually have seen the film now, start to finish. And as you said, George Foreman, man, telling his life story. What I love about it is you encompassed everything. Like you see George's upbringing, which I did not know much about his childhood. You see the big fights when it becomes this imposing, like you know that that fight against Frazier, then the, obviously the loss against Ali. His second act maybe it's his third act going to be a preacher becoming champion again how how did you do it like how did you streamline so much material into a two-hour film i thought it was amazing yeah you know it was, it was kind of interesting because we got done with the movie the, the movie was three hours and 45 minutes the long <laughs> version we had a lot more to tell you know george has such a big story so once we got in and started screening the film i don't know when did you see it last week or this week or? yeah i saw it two weeks ago yeah okay got it so even when you see it the next time is there's a few more things that i added in there which is going to nice. be great it's just you always sort of tweaking and you show an audience do i got too much childhood is too much fight how many how long do i want to spend here it's always about pacing with films you want to watch the audience the great thing is everybody was always engaged in the story that i felt as a filmmaker being angry being an angry young man to uh, the second half of george's life of being yeah. selfless is such a great arc and such a universal thing and i felt like that's the story that stayed the same all the way through, you know? Well, that's one of the best scenes of the movie when George has now adapted this different side. He's become religious, he's a preacher, and he meets with Ali again at the poolside. Now Ali's like, all right, what's this about? You want another fight, right? Like, what, what, you know, come on, like, let's not rope a dope this. And George is like, no, I'm just coming here with, with compassion as a friend. Ali's like, 
Come on. <laughs> like, yeah. like, there was such a, like, it's a great scene because not everybody was believing that George had made that turn because he was this ferocious figure. And then he became this like cuddly bear of a guy. It was amazing. Yeah, it was really great, man, to hear that story because him and Ali, he said it too. There's a lot of myth, you know, like myth that you hear that sometimes George felt that it was never really told. Like he always told me the story about the dog coming to Africa and everybody said he was upset about the German shepherd. Uh, yes. You know, that's something he said that nobody was uncomfortable with. And he said, and, and Zaire only saw Ali one time. And at one time he saw him was in the lobby of that yeah. scene when Ali and Foreman have a little confrontation in the, in, uh, inside the lobby of the Intercontinental Hotel in Zaire. Um, but these are the things, they became lifelong friends. You know, George wanted to hurt him with his hands. That's why he lost the fight. He wanted to end very early. He never took that fight very seriously. So then you see the arc that these guys talked every day was such an amazing, you know, relationship. The fight stuff is great. I'm not surprised because you're a terrific director who's done a lot of these different things. But I can't imagine even a director of your renown saying, okay, boxing movie fight scenes. I got Raging Bull. I got Rocky. I got Cinderella Man. I mean, I got Creed. I mean, how did you approach the boxing scenes? Because, again, it was different the way you shot it, which is amazing because of the fact there's been so many other boxing movies. Yeah, I was really happy. We finally got all the visual effects done this week. And, man, it's amazing. And one of the things is... What I love about our fights is that George fought in Zaire. He fought in uh, Puerto Rico. He fought in a lot of outdoor fights, which, you know, the heat, uh, the flares, these big, big, huge lights they used for the big cameras back then is to try to capture that atmosphere and what it's like. And they were really crunched in a lot of these fights and stuff in terms of the crowd. But in terms of what we try to do is one of the main things that a lot of people don't do we had our boxers hit each other for real. There's none of this wow. like, uh, you know, like you see the misses. <laughs> we have real boxers in these fights, uh, you know, and our fighters were really fighting and really try to figure out what was George thinking in each fight and follow that and be authentic as possible. So what you see is really the Zach positioning, the Zach everything, what you saw in those fights. I don't want to give away which fight it is. I want everyone to see it. But there's one fight you don't actually have George fighting it. Like, you use the actual video of George fighting it late. Yeah. What, was, what made that decision there? Because I thought that was curious. Almost all of the fights, it's Foreman being replicated. But that fight, it's like the HBO fight. You can hear, like, Larry Merchant calling the fight. Yeah, that was pretty great because, you know, that particular fight, um, what I believe you're talking about is the Holyfield fight. Yes. And uh, that was a big thing for George, which talks about spirituality. He had this vision that he was going to win a heavyweight championship belt again. But it didn't happen that night. And we, and that point of view is from Mary Joan, his wife's point of view, watching that. Um, and in that positioning is like sometimes we want things in life is not exactly when we want it. It happens at the right time. So the win, the final win comes a little bit later. And that's just yeah. something I felt like, let me change the point of view a little bit and try something and see what it's like from his family point of view, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of seeing the fights. It's an amazing story. And again, if you just say to somebody, George Foreman, they'll know little things. And of course, the casualist family will know the Foreman Grill. And yeah. I said, okay, how is George going to tell this story of the Foreman Grill? And you foreshadow it because there's earlier stuff in the film about the grill, which I thought was really a smart way to weave that in. Again, George is an executive producer on the film, so I'm not sure if he told you specifically, but I thought it was really smart that we weaved in the whole grill stuff. Yeah, it's really interesting. He told me some things about it. You know, the first thing he told me, I believe, was. He just really wanted to, you know, put his name on the grill so he can get some free grills, you know. <laughs> and the truth of it, I believe uh, his his lawyer, Henry Holmes, and his wife was really behind that. Um, but what we try to find in the movie is the beginning of the pitch, man, that we know, the sell 
of George Foreman. It was tough for him because he lost everything at that point. He had no money. He lost it through certain situations, and he had to go back to boxing. So the going back to boxing and the loss, really, we become the George. We see the George Foreman that we see today. You know? It's a real compliment, to, too, in that it's a family film. Like, whatever negatives happen, I don't think there's very little profanity in the movie at all. There's some stuff about infidelity, which is hinted at. You don't have to show it. Was that a real conscious effort from you and George Foreman to say, hey, I want this to be a movie that everybody can watch it with their kids, and it doesn't have to be an R-rated movie? Yeah, that's what I wanted to do, man. I really wanted because I felt like what the truth of it is my son loves sports, and he just felt like uh, he knew George as the grill. And he didn't know that he was a minister. He just knew him as a boxer fighting Ali. So I felt like I felt like this is something that I, what I love is that when we start testing a film that a, a lot of kids and women love the movie just as much as the men. And I started thinking about that. I think it's because we offered a family, a guy who lost, a guy who wants to change, a guy who becomes a better father, a better husband. And then the boxing sort of support that all the way. And it has those moments, but that was something I wanted to do. I really wanted to make a film that everybody can enjoy. Um, but truthfully, that's what we wanted to do. Apparently Hulk Hogan said on the Dan Levitard show that he, he passed up an opportunity to sponsor the grill that became the Foreman Grill. I don't know if like, George has told you that story. But. He like passed up on like, uh, he was like, he told us on the Levitard show, yeah, I had a chance to sponsor the grill and then ended up going to Foreman and it turned into like this like billion like, dollar thing. Oh my God, man. And then uh, that is sort of amazing, man, because that grill is, uh, it's, how unbelievable was that? Oh, it's great. <laughs> you know? It's great. I think when I first started making the movie too, you know, the comedian Michael Epps, he sent me a message and he's like, the message I heard, George, make sure you get that grill in there, you know? <laughs> so, so that's what we try to do, you know? We're talking with George Tillman. The film is called Big George Foreman. It's in theaters April 28th. I can't imagine how hard it is in the casting process. How the heck am I going to cast George Foreman? And now that you've disclosed it's actual fighting, so you need a guy who's a boxer. I thought Chris Davis was terrific. Had his look, had his charm, had his personality. How did you find him? How hard a process was that to get him? Man, I, 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 that's my first time I saw him was when he came into the, the audition. It was all at that time in 2020 or 2019, we were on Zoom. I couldn't even physically see him. So we were casting over Zoom, but I heard that he did something at the Lincoln Center in New York where he played Jack Johnson on stage. And then I saw his look, he's 6'4", and I was like, man, if this guy, he can play the younger and the older, I mean, he can gain the weight and not gain the weight and bring it down. But when he came in the cast, we finally got him in a room with Ali, you know, the guy who plays Ali in our film. Yeah. Sullivan uh, Jones is great. Yeah, Sullivan Jones is amazing. And they came, we did a chemistry test with them. When I did the chemistry test, it was pretty amazing. I knew those are our guys. Dedicated. Uh, Chris didn't know how to box when he first came in. So we got him with, you know, our trainer. We got him with Daryl, um, who worked on Ali, who trained Will Smith. And uh, we worked for a whole year. So, and he got the weight himself and he put it on. There's no bodysuit. There's no visual effects on him. That's wow. him. Yeah, Sullivan Jones, like, Ali is, is such an iconic figure. It's like, how are you going to cast Ali? But I thought he really got his voice inflections down. Like, he must have been walking around the tape recorder for months. The way he delivers the Ali dialogue, I thought was really well done. Yeah, really amazing. The, well, the great thing is he came in with audition tape, doing the Ali boxing and dance and everything with music, right? Wow. And he did it to James Brown, which was great because I'm a big James <laughs> Brown fan. So yeah. when we did the audition, but he got the job, and then we started realizing – 
yo, we doing Ali in in 71 with Frazier in 60 and 70. You know what I mean? Like, uh, we tweaked it. He's like, this is Ali in 74. Ali, could, not the dancer Ali, the yeah. slower Ali. And he just changed this subjective thing. And that's from him, you know, his relationship. I think he's really close to one of Ali's daughters. And that was something, those specific things we wanted to get right in the film. No, that's smart. Because, again, the boxing people are going to notice that kind of stuff when you're watching it. Um, Forrest Whitaker, Doc Broaddus. I mean, it's Forrest Whitaker, man. Iconic Academy Award winner. He's great in the role. I love this team, particularly when he gets Foreman into shape. Like, come back here when he dropped 30, young man. Um, what was it like working with Forrest? Man, he's amazing. I saw him. I first met him um, at a, a photo shoot for Vanity Fair after I did my first film, Soul Food. And then out of nowhere, I was at Minivana premiere. He showed he was there and he came up to me. He was very emotional, said he loved the movie. We've been friends ever since. Huge fan because he played Charlie Parker in Clint Eastwood Bird. And he won an award in Cannes. And I always like, this guy is amazing. He became more of like a mentor friend from a distance. So that role originally, Michael K. Williams was supposed to play the role of Doc Brodus, but he passed away on this. Um, we were like, what's, what's going to happen? All of a sudden... Somebody told me Forrest Whitaker read the script, but he wanted to, he loved the script. And it's like, it's so many years for me talking and taking advice from him and watching his work and learning from him. He was just came in and did a great, excellent job. Uh, Doc Brodus, the guy, World War II veteran, former boxer, 25 and 0, had to stop to join the war with the husky voice. He was amazing and he, he killed it and he got the role exactly the way I imagine it. I have a similar question about how you found, because I'm a big fan of Notorious, that movie, and I'm wondering how you found Biggie, because like, that was such a great cast. You know, it's so interesting, the way Chris Davis kind of happened. Chris Davis has been on Broadway and plays and movies, but I just wasn't familiar because he was such an East Coast. Uh, but what happened about with Biggie was we were in New York on the East Coast, and then this guy just came into an audition room where my casting director found found out he lived right around the corner from Biggie from the same neighborhood, and he can actually do hip-hop. So it was just sort of worked out. Like, <laughs> And what helped me for preparing for George was the per 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 preparation for Notorious. Same thing. It took about seven, eight months, a year to get that role right for Biggie. So it was actually to help me to get ready for George Foreman, you know? A few more and we'll get you out of here. But I, again, as a sports guy, I was like, who's going to get to cast Howard Cosell? And I love that moment. You have a guy playing Cosell with the, down goes Frazier, down goes Frazier. Tell me about that scene specifically. You know, that was interesting, man. You know, George knocked Joe Frazier out six times in that fight. Right. And um, the studio was like, there's no way you're going to get him knocked down six, you know? <laughs> so I said, okay, I get him knocked down five and do editing. You get a sense and it. But the main key of that was Howard Cosell, you know, uh, and I saw in the Howard Cosell documentary uh, it's such amazing. I shot the same shot selections that they used in that documentary profile down goes for every move, every camera move, who positioning. We got exactly right, man. And um, that's such a key. It's such an iconic. You had to get that awesome. right. I know if we two things we had to get right. We had to get the whole movie right. But the main thing was the key was. <laughs> The, the knockdown in Zaire. Yeah. We did that about 30 times. You know, Chris took some big hits on that one. And then down goes Frazier. Yeah. You couldn't get away from those two things. So we made sure we got that right.
Yeah, the pugilists are going to notice that if it doesn't go right. Thankfully, it came off flawlessly. Big George Foreman. Last one is about Foreman himself. What was it like through the process? Uh, I just saw, I haven't seen Air yet, but I saw Ben Affleck talking about it. He said he had one hour with Jordan just to ask him questions. That was it. I hope he had more than one hour in talking to George <laughs> Foreman about his life story. Yo, that was a great time because I met George. He flew out to uh, L.A. to meet me. So I had to not to get approval, but he he never he didn't know me. And it's such a big deal to take somebody's life and put it into a movie. Um, so right away we connected. And a lot of that had to do with our relationship with parents and family. That was such a big thing for George. Then it solidified that when I came out to Houston and to his house and then the barbecue that you see that he cooks the barbecue for the big scene in the movie. He had this great barbecue. And we, not on a foreman grill, I not on a foreman grill. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and uh, we just talked forever about his life and how he felt about things. So he was there, especially in script stages, just to want to make sure we weren't missing any details. And I was learning so much, especially the moment when he talks about, which is in the movie, when he goes to school and how the teachers would pass him up just because the way he dressed and they would go after the other kids. You can still see how that pain how he says how can anybody write me off without even knowing who i am that still resonates to him today i think from the ali from the comeback to making himself change from who he was and you don't find that just from reading books you find that just from somebody talking to you and he was there the whole entire time so yeah it's inspiring i'm glad you got to have that moment together and really do the story justice you mentioned off the top working with de niro he's one of my favorites everybody loves bob de niro you told me a great story about working with de niro on men of honor if you could share it with us the way he would deliver the line differently do all multiple takes it's great yeah, I mean, that was one time it went, and that was my first day of working with him. And then I, I started realizing he likes to do multiple takes, multiple lines right after each other. So, right. So if the line he, is, hey, how you doing? Hey, how, how you doing? doing? And he was like, hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? <laughs> and then I went to him after the first day, too. Another side story. I went to him. I said, Bob, I don't think you're giving me enough space in between the two lines, you know. So my editor, and he was like, Really? He says, I think you should uh, go back to your editor and take a look at that. I went back to my editor and he says, don't ever talk to Robert De Niro again about what you're not doing, right? So, <laughs> and um, he's such a great supporter, man. And I learned a lot through him because he's a director too. You know, he directs yeah. and um, pacing again, like you talked about the movie, the pacing and how do we fit all this in two hours and eight minutes, the movie, how all this got fit together and that's over the process of learning with guys like Forrest and guys like um, you know Robert De Niro and just with sports and life with George George there's a great quote that we have at the end of the movie about life it's not about what you do in the ring it's what you do with your life and these are the things that I just love taking from from these legends it wasn't the story too. one of the actors because I could be as good as De Niro too George it gave me 30 takes to do a line yeah he said that and I was like I thought about it I was like yeah I guess so but now nah, you're not Robert De Niro so <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned soul food was such an iconic movie this is going to require a nuanced and thoughtful answer so I'll make the question as simple as I can is it easier or harder to make a movie like that which is particularly geared towards black audiences I think it's actually, for me, I look at it was there's a movie that started my whole feeling about writing Soul Food. And that was a movie that Barry Levinson did called Avalon. It was about a Jewish family, his family coming over as immigrants. And I was so inspired by that, even though it was a Jewish family, it was from Baltimore. I'm from Milwaukee. I'm African-American. We had the same themes, the same sort of 
you know, conflicts and drama. And I was like, wow, that's the inspiration where I look at a film, I would bring my cultural specifics to it, but is what is the universal human aspect? We all are there. And that's something that I found in George Foreman is like a lot of people don't may not understand what it's like to be a kid being ignored because of your clothes and how you dress. But a lot of people can understand what it's like to change your life and better yourself. So again, it's me using these subtextual themes that's universal. So that's how I take films and making them. George Tillman, he's a good man. He's a terrific director. His film is called Big George Foreman. is in theaters April 28th. As we close, what are you working on now? I'm sure you got a bunch of different projects. What are you, you throwing know, your head? You know yeah. what? Um, this is just, just to be great, just to be fair, man, and honest, I literally just finished the movie two days ago. <laughs> Visual effects are great. Sound is ready. We got a great soundtrack. Man, it looks great too. So what you saw was good. But it has some things. Now it's all done. And, uh, man, audiences, I can't wait for everybody to see it. Because <laughs> well, I said to my wife, I said, there's no end credits in there. So I go, hopefully I made the credits. I just saw a rough cut. So hopefully I'll be able to see yeah, my name yeah. in the credits oh, when definitely. I go pay my – yeah, exactly. Uh, this was great stuff, George. I look forward to more films. Hopefully working with you again. Big George Roman. It's a terrific movie, man, and I can't thank you enough. Thank you, man. Great job in the film, brother. <laughs> Thanks, George. All right. Thank you, guys. Take care. That was awesome, George. Thank you. Be well. Thank you. Take care. All right. Well, I'd love to say I'm going to be at the premiere. Haven't got the invite yet, but we are going to have George and MLB Network. Me and Robert Flores are going to tag team this interview. So I hope I get to walk a red carpet. Maybe Metal Art gets to uh, get some free passes. You made a face there when I said tag team. You mean the tag team interview? Yeah. It's a little awkward. <laughs> no, it's not that awkward. Come on. It's not okay. Well... Uh, again, thanks so much to Giovanni Rapisi. Thanks to George Tomajura. Thanks to Chris Cody. Coming to you from the new studios. Again, check out the new studios. They look they look fabulous, man. You guys have a lot more room, a lot more space. Looks like a lot of fun. I hope people heard this episode because we're still kind of testing stuff out. So if, you, if you've just heard <laughs> 60 minutes of, of nothing, yeah. I'm sorry. Again, you're on... But if you didn't hear it, then you don't hear it. Anyways. You were on vacation last week. You haven't heard me and Samson head-to-head round uh, three, I think it is now. But- I saw a clip of it, and I saw it was it was a lot of the same uh, ingredients of David saying something, and then you kind of yeah, dismissing it with laughter. Yeah, it was definitely... I'm not going to be honest with you. Maybe I shouldn't look at social media. A lot of people are pro-Samson. Like, I look at the clip, and it's a lot of Samson. Samson's great. Samson's awesome. Adnan sucks. Adnan's a snob. I don't like his taste in movies. Cinephobe forever. A lot of Cinephobe fans. Zach Harper came out the top rope, just took a shot at both of us. Like, hey, man, I kind of been in the Oscars. You haven't. You know. That's Zach Harper trying to get in the conversation there. He sees two <laughs> movie guys being right. talked about, and it's like, wait, wait, wait. What about us? Yeah, yeah. I was like, I didn't take a shot at you. Anyways, so that's all forever. Please go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, me and Samson should be a weekly segment, I believe, on the Levitard Show. Dan Running Point, we shall see. Good to have Chris back. Next week, the granddaughter of Yogi Berra, Lindsay Berra, talking about It's Not Over, a new documentary about her grandfather in theaters soon. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Mm-hmm.